Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Calling all trivia nerds, Brittany here, and I host the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast with my best friend, Meredith. Is your next car ride looking like a snooze fest? We've got The Cure, three rounds of awesome trivia every week. Harry Potter, Disney, science, sports, you name it. No more silent car troubles. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Connect, laugh, and learn with your kids, big and small. (laughs) New episodes every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yes, indeed, everybody. It's episode 86 of The Past and the Curious. And for the month of November, I have not had a voice. I did miraculously find two days where I had a voice and was able to record the two stories. Um, But by and large, uh, I've been pretty froggy. I sound a little froggy still, but it's much, much better. Uh, My voice in the actual story parts is, is great. Don't worry. I mean, not great. I'm not like James Earl Jones or anything, uh, but you know, it's it sounds. I sound like myself. Okay, so whatever. I don't want to get. I don't want to belabor the point. Let's get into the episode. We're talking Walt Whitman, and we're talking Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. Two people who I'm pretty certain crossed paths at some point, or came very close to doing so. Um, who were both involved in efforts in the Civil War. But both of their stories are so much bigger and so much broader than that. I can't wait for you to learn about them. Let's go. When a young man named Walt Whitman heard Ralph Waldo Emerson say America needed and was destined to have its first great poet, something must have clicked in his mind. Did he think, hey, that poet can be me? Maybe. Many other people could have had the same thought, though. The auditorium in New York was full of other people, just as eager to hear Mr. Emerson lament about the lack of language lyricists in the land that he called hey, home. That could be me. Yeah. Me. That yeah, could that could be me. That could be me. Yeah, me. That could be me. That could be me. The Emerson guy on stage, his friends called him Waldo, was one of America's most important cultural figures of the time. He was a writer and a philosopher who had learned at Harvard and founded a new philosophical and artistic movement in America called Transcendentalism. So plenty of people came as he toured the eastern United States, reading this same essay over and over and over again about the need for a truly American poet. Sounds like a riveting evening, doesn't it? Well, Walt thought so, and despite having very little formal education and coming from a struggling family, Walt Whitman, a sometimes journalist, was set on a path to fulfill Emerson's prediction, one way or another. 
Walt grew up relatively poor. First, farther out on Long Island, and then in Brooklyn. Actually, he lived with his family well into adulthood and regularly shared a bed, by necessity, with one of his brothers. His father pulled him out of school after about six years of education and put him to work earning money for the family. Walt knew his father's occupation of carpenter and farmer weren't for him, so while running errands for a local office, he created an education of sorts for himself. Being near New York City meant he could visit libraries and museums and see art pretty easily. He also read constantly. But perhaps his greatest education came from his habit of striking up conversation with nearly everyone he met. You can learn a lot about human nature, life, and plenty of other stuff just by getting to know people. In New York City, he got a job working for a newspaper. At this time, it was common for certain types of businesses to be grouped together in big cities. So leather shops would be near one another, the meat industry took up a whole district, clothing factories were in the garment district, and all of the print industry in New York shared an area in Manhattan. And in 1835, a fire broke out in the shared print district. And since all of the buildings were stuffed to the gills with paper, well, the whole place burned to the ground. So Walt, along with many others, found himself quickly out of a job. The young man with limited education, but an incredible drive to educate himself anyway, became a school teacher. That lasted for a few years, but around the time he heard Ralph Waldo Emerson, he was making his way back to journalism and publishing and writing short stories, bad novels, and some poems on the side. But like most people, his first stuff was not great. It takes a lot of practice and focus to do anything well, including writing. After getting fired from one newspaper for being a little too vocal about his anti-slavery views, he went to New Orleans, where his anti-slavery views would be even less popular, and he edited a paper there. That lasted for three months. Upon his return north, he started a paper of his own. The day after he published his first issue, guess what? Another fire. So he was back to the drawing board. Years later, he emerged from his trials and tribulations with a collection of poetry, about a dozen poems, and he worked to get them published, thinking that he was on his way to being that poet that that Waldo guy had been waiting for. I have a book of poetry. You're going to love it. What's it called? Leaves of Grass. What's your name? Walt Whitman. Where'd you go to school? Nowhere, but everywhere. I learned from no one, but everyone. Okay, yeah, no thanks. After striking out, Walt decided to take a very do-it-yourself approach. He had some friends with a printing press, and he used their equipment and help to print it himself. This was a time when each individual letter to be printed on a page had to be arranged with a small brass letter stamp. It was time-consuming and a difficult process and it is said that Walt himself arranged them for his own book. Almost no serious author of the time would have done such a thing, but it was the only way to get the book done. And when Leaves of Grass was finished, at least for the first time, in 1855, he mailed a copy to Ralph Waldo Emerson. No one else cared much about the book, 
he sold very few of them. But Emerson seemed to love it. Waldo wrote a gushing letter to the unheard-of poet saying that maybe he was the poet that America needed. At least, that's what Walt heard. It must have felt great to Walt, and he wanted everyone to know about it. So without asking Emerson's permission, Walt published the letter. He told everyone, and he even carried a copy of it in his pocket nearly all the time. This was kind of against the rules to brag in such a manner, but that mattered not to Walt. He had a career to build. The next year, he wrote more poems, which he intended to add to Leaves of Grass. I have a book of poetry. You're going to love it. Emerson loves it. See, look here. What's it called? Leaves of Grass. Didn't you already publish that? Yes, but now there's more. No thanks. Rather than write new books over the next few years, Walt just published new versions of Leaves of Grass, each with more new poetry. You think you know Leaves of Grass, huh? Well, think again. Now with more poems, more beauty, and more wonderful Walt Whitman wordplay, yes, there's song of myself, but there's songs about everyone else, too. You've never read Leaves of Grass quite like this, so grab your copy and join the chorus as everyone sings the body electric. But in 1861, something big happened. The American Civil War began, and it captured everyone's attention. Walt's brother, George, enlisted, and soon enough, he was wounded in action. Ever close and caring to his family, Walt traveled to Washington, D.C. to look after his brother, who recovered quickly. But while Walt was there, he was moved by the thousands of soldiers who were hurt and in need of help. There were not enough doctors and nurses to care for them as they languished in hospital beds. So putting his writing career on hold, he got a job in the Capitol and spent all of his free time caring for wounded soldiers. As you might imagine, this time with injured soldiers impacted his life, as did the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Walt Whitman admired Lincoln greatly and had been in the audience when Lincoln gave his second inaugural speech. Soon after, he would also watch the president's funeral procession with much grief. His most famous poem, O Captain, My Captain, came from this experience. Written in honor of Lincoln, it was from a collection of poems he wrote inspired by the Civil War. But once the dust settled, Walt was back to his old ways, publishing, now with actual publishers, mind you, new versions of, guess what, Leaves of Grass. Now with more poems, better poems, and did I tell you, Emerson likes it. I mean, likes it doesn't really do it justice, he loves it. Loves it. He loves it. And you can't blame him, really. It's great. As the years went by, and each new edition of Leaves of Grass grew in length, Walt felt the effects of time. He had always been an active man, but when a stroke damaged his body, he knew that he had to take his health into his own hands. Walt Whitman, now a nationally known poet, eulogizer of Lincoln, and man with a seriously righteous beard, was also kind of a fitness guru. In fact, researchers recently found a whole batch of writings from the 1850s that he published in papers encouraging and detailing workout plans for everyone. 
His first two pieces of advice were, get some good shoes and get up. So if you are ever in need of revamping your exercise routine, I humbly suggest the wonderful Whitman workout. I'll find a tough oak sapling as thick as my wrist, 12 feet high, and with the tree I begin pulling and pushing, inspiring the good air. After I wrestle with the tree a while, I can feel its young sap and virtue welling up out of the ground and tingling through me from crown to toe. Then, for addition and variety, I launch forth with my vocalism, shout declamatory pieces, sentiments, sorrow, anger, etc., from the stock poets or plays, or inflate my lungs and sing the wild tunes and refrains I heard down south, or patriotic songs I'd learned in the army, I make the echoes ring, I tell you. Yes, wrestling with a young tree and screaming randomly into the air for the sake of your lungs is just the start. And don't feel weird about it. Walt doesn't want you to pay attention to passerbys who might think your behavior is strange. You shouldn't make yourself uneasy at how it will look to outsiders or what they will say. If screaming and yanking on trees still isn't gonna work for you, you could follow his daily hour-long workout routine from later in life. Stretches, lunges, squats, jumping over a fence repeatedly, and finally, shadow boxing. Or, as he described it, pummel some imaginary foe with stroke after stroke from the doubled fists. When Walt Whitman died in 1892, he had come as close to fulfilling Ralph Waldo Emerson's prediction for a truly American poet as anyone else had. And he spent those last years doing, guess what? Finishing a final version of Leaves of Grass. Hey, Cat Daddies. You tired of Leaves of Grass yet? I mean, yeah, me too, if I'm being honest. But, you know, it's my thing. And uh, I have another version of it. So here we go. This is the last one, I promise. I promise. Walt Whitman out. Before he died, the book would be altered and republished 12 times. It's a literary classic, and it all began with 12 poems that a guy with little education and big ambitions made nearly all by himself, printing and all. Walt believed in himself even when others did not. Of course, whenever anyone did believe in him, he made sure to tell everyone else about it. And you gotta hand it to him. He was a unique mix of self-education talent with words, do-it-yourself energy, and amazing self-promotion. If we could only have seen him wrestle with an oak tree. Come here, you, you little twig. You're like, uh, think you're so big. Your bark and your wood and your leaves. Well, I, I know something about leaves, too. And, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a poet, and I'm going to bend you to the heavens because I'm Walt Whitman. Don't you know it? Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. 
Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Hi, friends. Are you looking for a storytime podcast with your littles? Something that has some great storytelling and maybe some conversation about it? Look no further. With Storytime with Philip and Mommy, my little guy Philip and I sit down every single day and read a story together. And we, of course, want you to join us. Grab your copy of the book, sit down, let's read it, and let's talk about it. We'll learn new words, we'll learn new ideas, and then we'll learn how we can use those stories in our lives. It's a lot of fun. Classics like Little Golden Books or Bernstein Bears, all the way up through the newest phenomenons like Bluey. We talk about them and we have a lot of laughs. It's a great time and we hope that you can come and join us. So please look for us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Storytime with Philip and Mommy. Thanks so much. We'll see you there. Hello, and now it's time for You Have 30 Seconds. And uh, it's a good one this month. My name is Ryan. I'm eight years old, and I'm from Long Island, New York. I'm going to be telling you about Napoleon Bonaparte, who was a French general when he was only 16 years old. In the 1800s, he took over most of Europe and became emperor. While at war with Britain, the British drew him small in his newspapers to make him look weak. So everyone thinks he's small, but that's not true. He was actually average height and was the best general in history. Love your show, Nick Sullivan. Thank you, Ryan. Great work. Great enthusiasm. I loved it. And it made uh, timely sense because I think this week I'm going to go see the Napoleon movie that's in theaters. Probably not a kid's movie, but you know. You might have heard about it. If you have a story you would like to tell for You Have 30 Seconds, consider this your invitation. Just send an audio file to hello at thepastandthecurious.com. Can't wait to hear what you come up with. Nice work, Ryan. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yeah, you already know it. It's quiz time. So how about some poems and poetry and poet questions? Okay, question number one. Who was the first African-American woman to publish a book of poetry? Her name was Phyllis Wheatley, and she published her book in 1773, the year before she was legally freed. Her writing earned her many fans, both in America and beyond. She influenced many writers after her, but the later part of her life is a bit of a mystery. Okay, question number two. The British poet known as Lord Byron loved dogs, but when he was in school at Trinity College, the school had a no-dog policy. Byron found a loophole, though. What animal did he bring as a pet instead? Lord Byron was over the top in a lot of ways, and this was no different. Dude brought a bear to school as a pet. A bear. It wasn't against the rules, he pointed out, and he was right. There was no mention of bears anywhere in Trinity College's rules. 
Okay, third and final question. Is the poem, the Mahabharata, the oldest poem in history? The longest poem in history? Or the unquestionable best poem in history? Well, many scholars who have read the Mahabharata say the poem is still relevant in many ways today, and 4,000 years after it was written, that's amazing. But it is not the oldest poem. It is the longest poem at 1.8 million words. That's a lot of words. And it would take you over 15 hours nonstop to read the poem. In contrast, a poet from Scotland in the 1800s named George MacDonald actually is famous for publishing a poem that is only two words long. The title is actually longer than the poem itself. The shortest and sweetest of songs, it's called. And the poem, Come Home. If you ever have to memorize a poem for school, uh, that might be a good option. Since it was awarded in 1861, the Medal of Honor has been the United States Armed Forces' highest military decoration. Today, over 160 years later, only one single woman in all of history has been honored with this award. And in 1917, that woman, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, was notified by the United States military in agreement with Congress that they had <clears throat> changed their minds and she had to <clears throat> give it back. Now, as you might guess, Dr. Walker, now at the age of 84, had some thoughts about this. She probably had some nasty words to say as well. Whether she said them out loud matters not because her strongest statement came from her daily wardrobe from that point on. And this was very much in character because making statements with her wardrobe was how she had lived her entire life leading up to that 84th year. She wasn't gonna stop now. Mary had been given the Medal of Honor in 1865, which meant that by 1917, she and the award had been together for over 50 years. And she certainly earned it, as you will soon see. But when she got the news that she was officially removed from the National Medal of Honor list, it also came with this information. Wearing a Medal of Honor, if you are not an official recipient, is against the law. And since Dr. Mary Edwards Walker was no longer recognized as a Medal of Honor recipient, that law applied to her. It's against the law. Are we clear? Oh yeah, 100% clear. Good. So what did Mary do after learning this information? Well, she wore that Medal of Honor every single day for the rest of her life. What are you going to do? Take it from an 84-year-old lady who gave her life to helping others and was even imprisoned during the Civil War? Yeah, come and get it. There's no way you're going to come out of this looking like a good guy. Are we clear? Mary's wardrobe had gotten her into trouble all of her life. That spirit might have gone back to when she was a child. 
or it might have been with her at birth. What we know is that her rural New York State parents were free thinkers, and they made sure that their kids were honest, curious, and sensible. A big part of being sensible in their eyes was a pair of pants. That was a pretty wild thought at the time. You might think, pants? What's the big deal? You've probably got some on right now. If not, I bet you've got some in your dresser. Well, at this time, American society believed that this was a no-no for women. But her family didn't care. They thought that 19th century dresses and skirts and everything that went with them were cumbersome, potentially dangerous, spread dirt and germs, and made working difficult to do. And they had a point. So she wore trousers every day and worked hard beside her family. Even when she got married, she had a pair of pants on under her skirt. It was not traditional, to say the least, but that was Mary. She had met her husband in medical school, and that marriage did not last. But her commitment to medicine, healthcare, and the well-being of others certainly would. In 1855, she became one of the very first women to graduate from the Syracuse Medical College. Life as a rural doctor was not easy, though. Many people were hesitant to see a woman doctor. So when the Civil War began, she quit her private practice and headed to Washington, D.C. to help the Union Army. She requested a commission, which would make her an official military doctor with title and pay. But nearly everyone in power refused to give her respect, nor the position that she deserved. In their eyes, a woman couldn't be a military doctor, especially one wearing pants. She was allowed to volunteer, which she did. Actually, after the Battle of Bull Run, she volunteered among a host of others who were there also to care for the many wounded soldiers, including a woman named Clara Barton and a man named Walt Whitman. Mary stood out and earned a reputation of speaking up for patients when she felt that surgeries were too extreme, which was pretty often. She helped families find their loved ones in many of the hospitals and spent hours caring for the people most in need. One doctor who worked alongside her in Washington, D.C. saw how talented and insightful she was. And knowing that the military was not going to take care of her, he offered to split his salary. But Mary refused because he had a family and children to care for. By the end of the second year of the war, things had changed. In 1863, she was finally sent to the South to work in the field with many injured soldiers. Wearing a military-modified version of a bloomer outfit, like ones that we've covered several times on The Past and the Curious, she was officially named Contracting Acting Assistant Surgeon and assigned to a Union Infantry Regiment from Ohio. She was a civilian, but the first woman to serve as a surgeon for the United States military. There, she saw even more horrors of the war, and eventually she saw them up closely, closer than she would have liked. There's a belief that in addition to her duties as a surgeon, she was also acting as a spy for the Union Army, and this might have led to her being captured by the Confederate Army. For four months, she was a prisoner of war at a place called Castle Thunder, which was as menacing as it sounds. The one-time warehouse in Richmond, Virginia, was now filled with prisoners of war and people the Confederate government considered treasonous. 
The mattresses were filled with vermin. Rats roamed the floor, completely unstartled by any of the people. And diseases were shared like Thanksgiving dinner. Speaking of dinner, the food was atrocious. But as a medical professional, Dr. Mary couldn't help but speak up. Some grains and vegetables would go a long way in keeping people healthy, she told them. And soon there was some stale bread and stewed cabbage on the menu. It was better than nothing. Her most lasting gift from Castle Thunder was an eye infection that would affect her for the rest of her life. And after her dreadful stint in the prison, she was freed when the Union and Confederate armies negotiated a prisoner exchange to get their medical staffs back on the job. Mary's next stop was Louisville, Kentucky, where she was in charge of a medical prison. And it was from here that she asked the government for an official commission to become an official medical officer in the army. She even wrote a letter to Lincoln, but was denied. With no official commission coming her way, some looked for a way to honor her efforts with the wounded and her time in the prison camp. President Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, wrote a letter to the Secretary of War that Mary has performed service deserving the recognition of the government, which I desire to give, if there is any way in which, or precedent, by which this may be done. Finally, after a recommendation from General Sherman, for whom she may or may not have worked as a spy, it was agreed upon to give her the Medal of Honor. Mary wore it with pride. She pinned it to her bloomer outfit, the pants and skirt combo that she often wore with a long ladies jacket over top. She wore that Medal of Honor as she fought for dress reform, women's rights, and the right to vote. She wore it as she marched alongside Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Frederick Douglass. But in the 1870s, Mary stopped pinning her medal to the so-called bloomer costume. From that point on, she chose to dress in men's clothes, often a tuxedo and a top hat. As a result, she was arrested nearly anywhere she went, New York, New Orleans, and everywhere in between. When asked why she insisted on wearing men's clothes, she replied that they weren't a man's clothes, they were her clothes. When her father died, she was responsible for the family home, so she returned to Oswego, New York, where she more or less lived the rest of her life. She'd go on speaking tours, often getting arrested for her outfit, and she made her feelings about nearly everything very well known, from America's role in the Philippines to World War I and even local crime. Her views were well thought out and critical, which upset a lot of people but she really didn't care. She had been upsetting people all of her life. It was during her final years in Oswego that she got the bad news about her Medal of Honor. The rules about who could win such an award had changed because some people felt it was losing its value with so many other people getting one. When the rule was altered to only include individuals who had displayed great honor, bravery, and care of others, while under fire, that technically ruled Mary out. She was captured by enemies, yes, but she was never under fire. So, that's why they told her, and about 900 other people, that they were no longer recognized as Medal of Honor recipients. So the only woman to be awarded the Medal of Honor had to give it back.
Oh, you're not getting this back. I'm gonna wear it every day until I die. Are we clear? Yeah, we're clear. And that's just what Dr. Mary Edwards Walker did. She wore it, penned to her clothes, which happened to be clothes that men also wore, until she died in 1919. Mary never lived to see the wrong made right, but in the 1970s, her nieces spoke up for her and petitioned the military to reinstate her award. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter once again awarded Dr. Mary Edwards Walker with the Medal of Honor and officially added her to the distinguished list of extraordinary individuals. Nearly 160 years after first winning the award, she remains the only woman to earn the Medal of Honor in American history. Yeah, okay, episode 86. How about it? That was a good one to put together. I really enjoyed it. Um, I've been trying to work both of those figures into an episode for a long time, so I'm glad it finally happened. So I've got some people to thank, actually some siblings, for a shout out. Some siblings in Denver, Colorado. Some siblings called Wyatt and Poppy Luke. Wyatt and Poppy Luke, hello to you in Colorado. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you enjoy the show. I'm eagerly awaiting your You Have 30 Seconds because uh, the subject that was mentioned in a communication is a great subject. I, I love it. So um, thank you all so much for listening I, I, I'm, and the support. It really means a lot. Uh, and also, there's other people to thank. Like, um, oh, you, you listening. Yeah, you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who has told anyone about the show, left a review, uh, maybe gotten a book or given a book or asked the library to get a copy of I See Lincoln's Underpants or The Meat Shower or just press play just presses play anyone who does that thank you so much it, it's i'm glad that i can make this show and i'm glad that you are using your ears to listen to it so maybe if you want to use your mouth to tell someone else about it if you haven't done that yet you know feel free i'll talk to you all in december until then stay warm unless you're somewhere where it's warm in which case enjoy it i'm mick sullivan and this has been the past and the curious Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts.